Welcome to What the F is Going On in Latin America and the Caribbean, Code Pink's weekly YouTube program of hot news out of the region. In partnership with Friends of Latin America, Massachusetts Peace Action, and Task Force on the Americas, we broadcast every Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern on Code Pink YouTube Live. Today, we are very pleased to be joining conversation with Todd Miller. He's the author of Empire of Borders and Build Bridges, Not Walls. Todd has been reporting from international border zones for over 25 years. I should also share that uh, this episode was inspired by Leslie Salgado, who leads one of our broadcast partners, Friends of Latin America. So our program tonight and our guests are a huge thank you to Leslie. And so before, uh, before I introduce our guests, let me tell you a little bit about um, both of his books. Uh, the first, the more, most recent book he's written is Build Bridges, Not Walls. Um, in this book, he and uh, Todd invites readers to join him on a journey that begins with the most basic of questions. What happens to our collective humanity when the impulse to help one another is criticized or criminalized, excuse me, criticized and criminalized, criminalized being the key word. In the book, there's a series of encounters with climate refugees, members of indigenous communities, border authorities, modern day abolitionists, scholars, visionaries, and the shape-shifting imagination of his four-year-old son. These provoke a series of reflections on the ways in which nation states create the problems that drive immigration and how the abolition of borders could make the world a more sustainable, habitable place for all. And then uh, in his earlier book, Empire of Borders, United States is outsourcing its border patrol abroad and essentially expanding its borders in the process. The 21st century has witnessed the rapid hardening of international borders, security, surveillance, and militarization are widening the chasm between those who travel where they please and those whose movements are restricted. But that is only part of the story. As Todd reveals in Empire of Borders, the nature of US borders has changed. The boundaries have, ex, uh, have effectively expanded thousands of miles outside of US territory to encircle not simply American land, but Washington's interests. Resources, training, and agents from the United States infiltrate the Caribbean and Central America. They reach across the Canadian border and they go even farther afield, enforcing the divisions between the global South and the global North. So everyone, we've got a huge evening ahead of us with a wonderful guest and to discuss two books and some really, really important big themes that we're all witnessing today. So welcome, Todd. Thank you. It's my pleasure and honor to be here with you today. Well, it's really, um, I'm so thankful you accepted the invitation and I'm so thankful that Leslie put forward tonight's subject and was able to encourage you to join us. So, so thank you, Leslie. Um, yeah. <laughs> I want to, um, I guess, let me, the best place for me to start and maybe have, have you talk is that, you know, that both of these books, as I was reading them, really, there were some personal anecdotes that jumped, you know, right into my mind. The one with building bridges, um, not walls, I, I just so immediately made me think of our Code Pink friend, Carlos Laszlo, he's Cuban American, and he has a project called Puentes de Amor, in which he is uniting people of varying uh, politics surrounding Cuba, particularly Cuban Americans, in finding a way to get um, part, if not all, of the blockade lifted in Cuba. And so this is, and he's such a prime example of, of you know, building bridges in an emotional sense. And, um, and it just so, that project, Cuba specific, just leaped into my mind when I was, you know, reading excerpts from your book. So maybe we should start there since this is a current project that Code Pink is involved in and it just meshes so nicely with what, uh, you know, with the theme of this book. Yeah, sure, that, that's a great place to start. Um, uh, and it sounds like a, a really great project that you have going with Code Pink. 
Well, it's Carlos's project, but we we uh, we partner with him on a number put, of things. A good partnership, I should say. Yes, very good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's um so when you when you came to um title this book and the theme, let's talk about where that came from. And um because this is your your son accompanied you in in the um encounters you had that that come up yeah. in this book. Yeah, I should say the the book the book was inspired. It's in fact a in in a lot of ways I've the Empire of Borders book you just mentioned. I have two books before that as well which are very much investigative journalism. And um, this Bill Bridges Not Wells is also investigative journalism, but it's it's more of a meditation of, you know, these 20 or so years of looking at border issues and working on, working on the border. And it comes from uh, a lot of really, you know, these experiences that I've had reporting on it. And it starts, I should, if you don't mind, I'll mention how the book starts. Of course. It start, yeah. It We'd starts love to hear this. Great. Um, it starts with uh, an encounter I had with a person. I was driving in the on the Tonawatam Nation, which is on the it's a it's a uh, native reservation that borders Mexico and southern Arizona. And I was about 15 miles north of the border and rumbling down a dirt road when a man appeared at the side of the road and, and he was waving his arms in distress. So I pulled over and um, rolled down my window and started talking to him. And I should say. Right before that, I was going up this mountain with a Tonawatam elder in the Babakivari Peak, for those who are familiar with um, with the geography in Arizona. And you could see, like, the you could see even we we're 15 miles away into Mexico from this top of this mountain peak. And, and I remember thinking, wow, this is this is almost like what you would see with a borderless world because you couldn't see the border. It was just the horizon. No, the border's a line on the map. Yeah, it was a line on the map. You well, couldn't see that too, line. But... Yeah, yeah, it's a wall too. So you would actually see that on the ground. But at that at that level, you couldn't see it. So in that moment, when I stopped and I was talking to this man, and it turns out he's been walking through. He was from Guatemala. He had been walking through the desert for a couple of days. Um, he needed some water. I gave him a bottle of water, and then he asked me, um, or I asked him, "Is there anything else I can do?" And he said. Um, can you give me a ride to the next town? And then I hesitated. And the reason I hesitated was I knew what was around me. I knew the border apparatus. Um, I knew that for the border patrol, if you if you uh, further some what they call further someone's presence in the United States, it could be a felony. You could face years in prison. So I hesitated. I knew that from all these years of reporting, I knew that you know the border patrol was around. They could be drones flying overhead. There could be a surveillance camera on me. There could be an implanted motion sensor that we tripped. And, but this hesitation turned into ire or just, I just got really mad because at the same time, you know, here we are, um, the, this man I'm talking to is obviously in distress. Um, I know what goes on in the desert. I know that people perish crossing through, through the borderlands. Um, and all the values that I learned from a very young age was to help other people, right? Like in, in all the different, like just intrinsic values you're, you learn. And then here I am being told, you know, no thinking about the law and I'm not, you know, I'm not supposed to, to help this, this, this guy. And so that, and that was a seed of, of uh, Bill Bridges, not walls. It was, it this was is a, the criminalization of helping someone. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, so what I did was I took that moment and it turned into this book, but I took that moment and I, I took those questions I had from that moment and which is also a meditation of all these years of reporting, but also bringing these questions to all kinds of people from visionaries to philosophers, mm -hmm. to migrants, to refugees, to even agents. Um, and, and as you mentioned earlier, children, including my own children. And there's this one, Real, real great story. We were at the border wall in San Diego. I live in Tucson. So San Diego's maybe about five or six hours in car from here. And we were at the border wall right where it meets the sea. So people probably know where the ocean just comes crashing against, against the border wall. It extends deep. Yeah, it goes into the right sea. into the water. Yeah. It's really grotesque yeah. looking. Yeah, yeah. It's very, yeah. And these surfers are out there. They were kind of uh, 
purposely antagonizing the border patrol. They would go back and forth between the two countries. But anyhow, I was there with, with William, who at the time was four years old. And uh, the, they yelled at William because he was going to run up to the wall and talk to people. So the border patrol yelled at him, told him he couldn't do it. And so uh, we sat and talked about it. So there's that lack of humanity, the humanity being taken right out of, of a little child. Yeah. The, so he is baffled, right? Why can't yeah. I go talk to these people? Sure. And, um, but it, this is this this is I think what captures the spirit of this book of this book was this conversation because we talked about things, but then he looked at the wall, which is made of steel. It's made of metal, bollard bars. It's almost like looking at a prison. And he said, "Why can't we use? Why no? Why can't we take an excavator? Because he just learned that particular word and crush the wall." and then turn the wall into bikes. So there it was, right? The, the wall, yeah, that was, the, it's like the pro, that was, that I think captured one of the profound spirit that was just manifested in many different ways throughout this particular book. Doesn't that just what, I mean, just for you in that moment, just a true life physical example of, the, the things we learn as we become adults, the things that corrupt us, because here's yeah. your son, like, well, let's just tear it down and build a bicycle. I mean, you know, <laughs> or go and it's so practical, right? Yes. <laughs> and, and, and something that everyone could enjoy. Right. Like yeah. this, the, <laughs> taking it from an, a, a, a symbol or actually an act of oppression into yeah. something that is an act of freedom, like uh, uh, something that impedes movement to uh, to the freedom of movement. And he saw it and here I am, what, you know, like all the, I'm not gonna reveal my age here, but all these years and um, and and I don't even, it doesn't even occur to me that you look, you could look at this wall and think of it as another thing altogether that it could be, have another use. Um, well, he hasn't been corrupted by the yeah. media and the paradigm that we live in in the States, you know, he's, a child. Exactly. It just really, I mean, it's such an example of things on, on so many levels, you know, what yeah. we learn and how that, you know, how we evolve given all the stuff that's, you know, put on the hard drive. Yes, Leslie. Yeah, I would just like to add something, you know, that um, this brainwashing and training uh, and dividing people is not only happening in the U.S., unfortunately. I mean, you go almost to any country in the world and Todd talks about it in, in this book and also in Empire of the Borders, you know, how we are breaking people up in order to have the ones who have everything, who have the right to go anywhere, uh, to basically look out for their interests as if the poor people are the ones who are taking things from us without understanding that they are the ones who are helping us with everything. I mean, they are the workers. They are the ones who are out there as first responders. When this whole pandemic hit us, who was feeding us everywhere? My, I originally come from Ecuador, and my sister was telling me how the indigenous Ecuadorians, you know, decided that in order to survive, they had to come out and sell their products. Yes, they were wearing masks when they could afford it, but they were the ones who were saving lives right here in the U.S., who are the first responders, the people who are working in, in medical centers and stores, grocery stores, cleaning the streets. Uh, I mean, they are the ones. Uh, I love your book, Todd, and I have told you this before because as a retired bridge engineer, I'd rather build bridges mm. than walls, definitely. Thank you. She does. All of you watching should know Leslie does. She is She's profoundly good at her at her Latin America solidarity work. She can talk with everyone. And we all admire you for that, Leslie. You're such a great Thank example. You. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. But Todd brings it to the whole world because what, what I love about the work that you do, Todd, is that you know we work in certain regions only because we are crows and we know a little bit more about those regions. But the same policies are being applied worldwide. What happens against Ecuadorians or Latin Americans is also happening about Iraqis and is happening against Syrians. I mean, it's, it's, it's a worldwide problem and, and you make that connection. And so that's what I love about the work that you do, Todd. Thank you. Well, maybe- It's in we Haiti. 
Well, we yeah. may, I should say, maybe we should, we should continue with this theme that less, I have all these notes, Todd, for all these things that are just leaping into my mind as we talk. I do want to get to Haiti though, as Leslie, the, the, the criminalization of helping people. I, I really, that what the thing that pops into my mind about that is the case of Dr. Scott Warren, when he was trying to yeah. bring water to the desert. I think a lot of, I mean, he was, that was a terrible situation for him for trying to bring water to migrants. And, uh, and then um, we should, well, let's talk about Haiti and climate change and how, how climate change is driving migration. Governments are driving migration and Leslie kind of touched on that. And, um, and of course, how corporate America and transnational corporations are actually profiting from Push me from this created, created migration. Yeah, um, I, I know that that's a whole lot, but there's so much, <laughs> and, and we have you for the hour. So. Yeah, no, no, it's great. Um, the uh, I I could start with Haiti because Haiti, you know the the um whole situation in Del Rio that I'm sure a lot of people here were following. Um, but in the U.S. on the U.S.-Mexico border, and and I always look at the coverage of you know the kind of cable news network coverage of it, and it just <laughs> it's kind of it's appalling, really, um, the way that it's at the way that it's it's often it's often framed. Um, but uh, but looking at this, you know, if we to to talk a little bit about empire borders, the border um, about the extension of the U.S. border, uh, this isn't the first time. The Haitians have been, of course, uh, at the U.S. border. The U.S. border actually goes right up to the Haitian shores. Uh, the, and one one real real vivid example of that was the 2010 earthquake that I I think people will remember. More than 200,000 people were killed. Um, uh, more than a million people displaced in Haiti. Haiti. And on um, five days after that hurricane, the United States sent a jumbo jet over Haiti people in the rubble of the devastation in their homes. Uh, uh, and they heard the disembodied voice of the Haitian ambassador speaking in Creole, uh, interpreting what the US embassy was saying, telling people not to leave. If they left the island, then they would be interdicted and returned. So what happened is then 16 Coast Guard cutters from the United States came right up to Haitian waters and were at the ready. So the border, this is the border, at the ready, to interdict anyone who came. Um, at the same time, Geo Group, which people know is yeah. a private prison industry, mm -hmm. they opened up beds in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Uh, so if they were to interdict them, they would have detention space for any of the Haitians leaving the island. This is all in 2010. This is just one example of how the board, <clears throat> excuse me, I, something caught in my throat, how the border is not a stat, it's not a static thing. It's it's elastic, it can expand. And in this case, it expanded right up to the Haitian shores. And one more thing I wanna mention about this, cause this is something I go into pretty deeply in Empire Borders, is that also, you know, that Haiti shares the island with the Dominican Republic and the DR had been re receiving tons of uh, first pressure, then training, then resources by the United States to form its own border patrol. And so I was able to go and, and see that firsthand, uh, the border between the Dominican Republic and Haiti in the town of Dahabon. And, uh, and, and you could see like the formation of this border patrol, uh, how it, they were sitting their X's, just like you would see US border patrol agents sitting their X's on the US-Mexico border. You could see the, 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 the kind of blueprint of training that they were getting. So if, a, so if somebody were to leave because of that, that earthquake or later because of any of the reasons that, you know, the kind of what Christian Parenti calls the catastrophic convergence, he's a sociologist. He wrote this book on climate, climate change uh, called The Tropic of Chaos. And what he calls a catastrophic convergence is when a number of different issues that are often siloed, right? Like your political, mm -hmm. economic, social, and in his analysis, increasingly ecological issues. And he, in his, 
climate change is what he was specifically looking at, increase and converge together to create untenable situations, which often are displacement. So when you have that sort of catastrophic convergence, when you see in Haiti, right, with with uh, Haiti is uh, I, the, there's a, a group called German Watch and it determined that Haiti was the number one country of that had been hit with weather rate related events um, in the past 20 years uh, tied with Myanmar. So Haiti is one of those countries that's getting pretty nailed in, in multiple ways by the changing climate. So you have this 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 um, this climate emphasis. And if you look at who's emit, you know, when you think of the US border on the Dominican land border up to the shores, and then if you just go and Google or you can go look at uh, who has the historic emissions, the greenhouse gas emissions, and the United States is responsible for 30% of the entire world if you go back to 1850. In Haiti, I think I have to remember, but it's 0. 0.0 um, something like seven. Per, so, the, so the point is a, fra a mere fraction of, of the emissions. And that's one of the, th you know, one of the elements that's that's behind this sort of displacement. Yet, when when uh, when people try to move, there's a U.S. border on all angles, and and so uh, so when people arrive to the U.S.-Mexico border via, in a lot of cases, South America, via Chile, mm -hmm. via Brazil, coming up these long journeys up up through um, the Americas to get to get to that border. It's not it's not like they came here out of nothing, right? It's not right. like it's often presented. Oh, it's thin air. Out of thin air, there's all of a sudden all these people at the U.S. border. One, no, there's a whole huge story, and the United States is very much involved in that story. And then two, this the border they are facing the U.S. border constantly. So this is just another manifestation of it. Well, I always um, we've talked on this program before that you know the U.S. border basically. I, I mean, I'm talking to all of you from Mexico City tonight. The U.S. border goes right down through California, Texas, through Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, hops over Nicaragua, which I would argue is part of the aggression towards Nicaragua right now, and then continues on through Costa Rica, Panama, right, and right down into Colombia, and perhaps now even Ecuador. And so, yeah, it's, it is constantly expanding. And there are, you know, US, there's U.S. representation in various forms of police and military right on those borders. I think so many people watching, I'm sure, have traveled to Canada. When you come back to the United States from Canada, you go through customs and immigration at the airport on the Canada side of the border, in the airport, in the Canadian. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, with I mean, a welcome, a welcome to the United States sign. Yes, you're exactly. in Canada. There you under, yeah. In Canada, <laughs> yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about. Um, oh, I just about Haiti mainly because right now we're seeing so many people fleeing Haiti. Natural disaster. They've had hit by the hurricanes. Uh, a coup led uh, uh, led by the United States. Assassination of a president. I, I mean, just on and on and on. It just doesn't. It just doesn't end for for those people. Um, many are fleeing across the Caribbean to the Colombian shores, and then uh, and then taking a, a short boat trip. And they're very clandestine, you know, like coyotes smuggling people into into the United States from Mexico. These little boat trips to Panama, and then coming up the Mesoamerican Peninsula, as you described. They just, not just coming from one place. And it's a horrific journey that these people are taking, principally Haitian. And they are part of that population held in Del Rio. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they're, yeah. and they're, as they travel north through that whole area, as you just said, that's um, all, of the, all of those places, well, particularly Panama and Honduras, as you say, Nicaragua doesn't isn't in the isn't in the equation necessarily, but um, Honduras, Honduras particularly, and in Guatemala, they've had just incredible amounts of resources put in by Customs and Border Protection. Example three hundred of how the border is extending, putting just tons of money, trainings, uh, trainings of police and immigration officials, forming border patrols and. In, uh, in these different places 
and the whole apparatus, much like you see in the United States. So like if you're coming up as a Haitian uh, through these places, the U.S. border pretty much probably starts at the Panamanian coast. And then and then you're just facing it constantly everywhere you turn. Um, I, I, I would really like to get some more information about how many people are getting arrested. And I know on the Mexican Guatemala border, there's been quite a few. Um, I know that the Mexico has really ramped it up and really have been targeting Haitians coming across. Um, so, but that, and then again, it's like, I, I no longer, I consider it to be like just extensions. I mean, it's a quad, it's a collaboration, I guess, between the countries. So the countries are collaborating for sure. And it, but it's like, pre, there's a lot of pressure from the United States and, and just tremendous amounts of resources and trainings and, and that are put into like building up these borders. And, and you look at the US border policy and any of the strategy papers and you see the word layered everywhere, layered, 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 layered. Mm-hmm. And that I, you know, before I really went into this endeavor with Empire of Borders and looking at this, I would more be inclined to think, oh yeah, it's layered going into the United States, into the interior. There's the border patrol works in hundred mile zones. Ice works in the interior. So it's like a border being the whole country. But now I know better that it's also very much going rippling out into the world. And that is also part of this layered apparatus. And then Mexico has been since 2015 has been arresting and deporting more Central Americans than the United States. So this is a shift in this in this case, it's a shift um, of what the US had been deporting more Central Americans. But in 2015, there had a programa from Terra Sur, which, mm-hmm. which was implemented in 2014, but also just this kind of bolstering of the border. And so a lot of people, asylum seekers, people coming north, get stuck at the at the Mexican-Guatemala border before they even, even come close right. to the U.S. border, which also keeps them out of the, the cameras of the media. Like, people don't even know this is happening. Because, I mean, if, if there's... Cover, like lacking a scarcity of coverage on the U.S. border. Imagine how the lack of it on the Mexican Guatemala. Oh no! Border. A lot of people have no idea how how violent and aggressive the the Mexico um, Guatemala border is. It's it's really and it and it it is extraordinarily controversial here in Mexico, um, especially since Mexico has such a history of welcoming immigrants mm-hmm. throughout history and non and non interventionist and a, and a president who is you know, really pretty progressive, especially coming out of the SELAC summit uh, in September. And yet here is this policy in, you know, collusion with the United States to hold people at the Mexico, the Southern Mexico border with Guatemala. I would ask you how much of that, I mean, has to do with climate change that is dramatically affecting the Northern Triangle countries, which, Again, climate change does not get tied into a root cause of migration much in the United States, but we're looking at people coming from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, what we refer to as the Northern Triangle. It, 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 it definitely should, should be a lot more. And I can give you some, some statistics that show this. Um, I remember when the, the book before Empire of Borders I, I wrote was Storming the Wall, and that was all about like connecting climate change and borders. And I did, uh, I did do um, some research right Right. I remember like in 2015, I was in Tenosique, right on 20 miles from the Guatemalan border and talking to uh, three Honduran farmers who were, who were saying they, they're going north because there was no rain. There's no rain, no harvest. And that, um, that dry corridor. That's and they're from exactly the dry wow. corridor and the dry mm-hmm. corridor area um, that extends from Guatemala, to, uh, even southern Mexico into uh mm-hmm. Nicaragua, all the way to Nicaragua through Honduras, El Salvador. And um, that swath of territory is getting bigger and, and the kind of unpredictability of the, of the rains stronger um, and the droughts are, are becoming more persistent. And 2018, this is like three years after I was there, those, the droughts were so bad that, um, that by the end of it, the World Food Program uh, uh, came out with a report saying that 2.4 million people in the dry corridor area were suffering hunger. And even that year, Customs and Border Protection 
admitted that people from Guatemala were coming from these drought-stricken provinces or departamentos in Guatemala. Mm -hmm. And then I should I want to add to this because that's already a dramatic number. But after 2020, and you have accumulation of more droughts, and then these two back-to-back -back hurricanes that hit Honduras and Nicaragua on the coast in, in November, uh, a year ago, nearly a year ago, back-to-back um, -back category four hurricanes that were just that, that intensified like we're seeing in the climate era um, really rapidly in the warm, warm Caribbean waters and then carrying tons of precipitation. So the water, the flooding in Guatemala was in, intense, like flooding so high that, that it, uh, um, it just like one town, they, they described it being underwater except for the church steeple. Um, and, uh, and so after 2020 combined, of course, with the pandemic and the COVID, uh, um, everything with COVID, that number of 2.4 million people um, in hunger in, in these areas went up, and this is again, according to the World Food Program, went up to 8 million people um, in, just, in just those couple of years. And they also asked, they just surveyed people, how many are, are, are people are considering migrating in 2018? 8% said they were. Concrete plans, they use the word concrete. Who has concrete plans to migrate? Mm. In, in 2018, it was 8%. And then in 2000, this last survey I was just mentioning, 2000, it happened in January of 2021, that went up to 15%. So all, all the, there's all these, these ties that we're seeing um, to this displacement. I would argue again that it's in the kind of catastrophic convergence of many different issues yeah. coming together. And the ecological issues are, are exacerbating situations. Yeah, Leslie. I, I would like to, to <laughs> well, I, I just want to make sure that I don't cut you off, but you know, mm -hmm. we, a group of us went to Nicaragua last year in January, and uh, we, we went there because we were concerned about the news that we were hearing about what the role of the government was and these upheavals in April of 2018 and all of that. And what you just said, you know, about what's happening in Honduras and Guatemala particularly, it's quite different in Nicaragua. Uh, our experience was that, and, and so what I want you to, to tell us a little bit about what your feelings are about, you know, what the role of governments that are there to protect the people, like I believe in this case, you know, the governments of Honduras and Guatemala are not, uh, you know, and, and the floods and everything, there were these climate change issues, like it hits Cuba, it, it hits uh, Puerto Rico, the difference between the, the number of people that are hurt, whose homes are destroyed, people who died, you know, between Cuba and Puerto Rico, and also the difference between the people who died in Honduras versus uh, Nicaragua is, is tremendous, is huge. Yeah. Because in Nicaragua and in Cuba, two countries that have been demonized by the United States are doing the right thing. Can you tell us? you know, what your thoughts are about Puerto Rico that. still doesn't have electricity. <laughs> uh, about that. Yeah, I mean, I think I, my, my own research has been more looking at places that have been like looking at the US and the US border and how that's meeting up um, and how they're collaborating with governments. So I, it's hard for me to, to speak in depthly on this, but I do, I have seen uh, what you're talking about. I've seen it's they're the noticeable like especially with Cuba, um the Q the Q you know like there's her I remember Hurricane Irma, that was mm -hmm. from a uh, three years ago I think, and it just um admit that was before Maria right that just nailed mm -hmm. Puerto Rico, but it went right uh, through Cuba, mm -hmm. and I was just amazed like the of the, and there was a bunch of articles about it that and I and I read a couple of them about how Cuba was able to withstand this cat I think it was category 5 hurricane <laughs> way better than when it hit Key West or when it hit Florida um a few day a day or two later and 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 of course like you didn't hear anything about Cuba compared to Puerto Rico in that same time Maria hit maybe 3 weeks later and in the devastation as Terry just mentioned is still like you go to, I was just on the west coast of, of Puerto Rico wow. maybe a year ago, and there's still just like, you still see the devastation of the hurricanes. Not to say that 
of course in Cuba that could be the case too that you'll see the the just trees that have been knocked down and right. stuff like that but um but those sort of statistical differences are I think are very apparent and I think you bring up these really good points that it does matter what governments are doing and that which goes to this other point which which is why are these governments collaborating with the United States so much to then spend all these time and resources and energy um, in the case that I'm looking at in Empire Borders of building up border patrols when mm -hmm. instead they could be focusing time and energy and, and on, you know, maybe a force that helps people get through these situations that are like the disasters or, or droughts or, you know, there could be just, it just go, it shows goes to this world that if you look at climate, it's like, this is the existential problem. When you think of borders, oh, you're supposed to think, oh, there's a threat on the other side of the border and we should be scared of it. They're going to come take something, right? And that's, that's I, can't, I don't know if you can swear, but it's a, it's a bunch it's of BS. <laughs> um, but but so, the same question, you know, why, why, why are these countries spending so much money in war? Yeah, exactly. In policing when right. instead of, you know, spending in medicines, medical supplies, and cleaning the environment, you know, protecting the environment and education of our children. Uh, I mean, yes. that's the question. Yes, that's exactly right. It just makes wow. so much more sense if you're really concerned about well-being of people, even if you're concerned about like people not having to be displaced, right? Or right. if there's like the infrastructure and resources if somebody has their, their community flooded, but there's resources to fall back on, there's a health system to fall back on, there's a, you know, there's all these things that people can fall back on, then you don't, you're not in the such desperate situation. And it creates a whole other different thing. There's a whole different uh, element. But, but, but what I'm seeing, what I'm seeing, like you say, like, the brunt of the money goes to the militarization of you know the and borders being one part of that right and uh it's just money that's so ill spent and it could be just spent making a much better world than than what we have before us well it's that i don't know the word now unless they want to say choke choke <laughs> that mm -hmm. that clash that we're seeing yeah. we've talked about this uh before specific to latin america and the caribbean this clash between these two paradigms, those governments and economic systems that are people over profit, or at least a, a healthier balance, and then you have this US neoliberal model that is profit, 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 it's all about profit. And you see places like Puerto Rico, which have not been able to recover from the hurricane, everything has been left to fall apart and is now being bought up cheap and privatized. The natural resources, the the public infrastructure, public institutions, they've all been left destroyed and are being made into private enterprises, which is part of the problem that's wrong with, with the Puerto Rican electric grid. And we talked about this last week, for those of you who watched us, that and my guess last week, the power went out right before she was supposed to join Zoom. And it came back. But, but it's privatized and the, the public grid serviced the whole island. And now you have a private system that only services, you know, a privileged part of the population. And that, and, and also we see this with this, this privatized, this people over profit models. Leslie brought up the hurricanes and Honduras that hit, well, Guatemala too, as you said, Nicaragua and Honduras, November of last year, we, we did an episode specifically talking, this was after the first hurricane and then five days later, the second mm -hmm. one hit. But in between the two, we, we had a conversation with uh, re representatives from both countries and there was no comparison as to how here this US propped up government in Honduras mm -hmm. that has ample resources, not going to the people, but to the government. And, no response, hardly at all, for people on the Caribbean coast of Honduras. And Nicaragua had, you know, rapid response with everything they could possibly, you know, offer, including getting roofs back on houses within 10 days and the communication tower back up. And I mean, no comparison in the response. And, but it's those two models that clash. And I'm sure that has something to do, you know, with the police. 
but also, you know, one of the things just in the in the, the synopsis of your book was how um, certain a certain demographic on the planet remains free to travel, and so many of us less and less and less every day, and that's who who gets the access. And that segment tends to be the wider one, the wider looking one, isn't it? Global North, <laughs> the people in the global, global north, north, which you talk about in your book too. And maybe we should yeah. touch on that, that disparity between the global North and the global South. Yeah, sure. Um, one of the things that I, I think is a super important, because when you, when you talk about open borders or no borders, it's, it's such a it's a very stigmatized subject it seems to me um it's hard to mention you know and even in casual conversation it seems to um but 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 one of the things is like what what do people think of they think of people coming to the U.S. border and people who have been dispossessed really you know and and it's never thought of that there isn't already an open borders policy. And there's an open mm -hmm. border, like an open borders policy, right? For U.S. passport holders in many ways, you can get- And for, and for U.S. business interests. That's what, that's my next point. The, no, the main thing I want to, I want to talk about it is that, right? You have mm -hmm. the U.S. business, U.S. military as well, um, that can mm -hmm. go wherever they please. They go over borders at 35,000 feet. They don't have to- um, often like now there's so much extractive industry everywhere, just sucking the wealth out of everywhere. All these countries um, leaving like water sources poisoned with cyanide if it's a mine. And, um, and yet, you know, when we talk about border patrols, it's always for the, the poor, right? right? When you talk about ice coming in and rounding it up, we're not talking about them coming to round up a mine or a mine put in Zacatecas or in San Marcos in Guatemala, it's a, it's a, it's, I, they're not coming to deport and expel people for causing harm. It's always about people, you know, workers, poor workers, or um, the way, the way that it's all, it's all like kind of framed is that there's, there's, you know, we only think about it for one set of people. And there's another set of people that it's just, there are open borders, can go wherever they please, do whatever they want, take whatever they want um steal whatever it wants and there's and and there's nothing stopping it so that's that's one of the um that's one of the uh i think that's a, a major point i think i like to underscore like when we talk about border patrols we're always talking about one set of people not another set of people mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. since colonial times right yeah 500 years yeah 500 in this so this board these borders like this are are definitely like a neo-colonial project in, in a, uh, but they're just the latest manifestation of that kind of right. militarization that you've seen since colonial times. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. right. Pre preventing people from moving around. It's a- it's... It, In fact, like you think of how borders are formed and it's totally a colonial process, right? The way yeah. that indigenous land, like the US Southern border, it's imposed upon like the Tanatum people who live on, who have Tanatum on the Mexican side and the US side. It's a colonial project. And if for what we talk about decolonizing, right? Well, let's mm -hmm. open up the border, right? The borders keep us segmented and, and, and even our thoughts in certain, in certain kind of colonized ways, like thinking of countries that were all their shapes were made uh, from colonial processes. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, and then the asymmetry that we see today and how it plays out in the world um, really stems back to this kind of colonialism um, that that is present, whether we know it or not today. I think that for me, you know, my biggest in reading both books, but the, the thing that just makes me want to cry, but all at the same time make the hair stand up on the back of my neck is that people are being prevented, physically prevented from fleeing natural disaster and or economic disaster and or, you know, war. And as you mentioned earlier, a lot of those things are caused by U.S. economic foreign, economic policy and foreign policy and military policy. And 
you know, to, to not be able to flee a devastating hurricane, to not be able to move somewhere when your farm is no longer aggregable. I mean, that's just, I, I, it's inhuman. I, I, I don't even know how to define it. I can't even imagine the things that you've seen. I know Leslie and I have traveled all over the Americas for most of our working lives. And I, mean, I can't even imagine the things, Todd, that you have seen, you know, it's particular it's it's just awful i don't even know i don't even have the words for it it's killing people in in a way i i guess it's a form of of murder for lack of a better i would argue yeah i would argue that um you don't see like it's 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 a new type of warfare um yeah that's it's uh it's it's how the wars are happening the wars are happening less between countries nation states um and more between a, a war of elite on the poor and the and these wars happen often in these border zones um whether it be the Gu- mexico guatemala border dominican haiti border panamanian border with colombia you know you name it and um and it happens in places that are just not seen like what you're talking about this this kind of um block blockading of people is is um not seen it's it forces people out into these really desolate areas where um the 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 war becomes this you know these this confluence of different possible devastating things happening like the prevention through deterrence strategy on the u.s border forces people into the desert where they cannot carry enough water like the juan carlos the man i was talking about that i met on the on the road and if you bring uh, and, them water, you're arrested and put in jail, like Dr. Warren. <laughs> right, the humanitarian aid efforts, though supposedly, to be clear, you're you're supposedly according to the human the humanitarian or to, according to the law, you can give people water. Though, as you just mentioned, that's been contested with in the Scott Warren case and other cases, like in southern Arizona, people have put out water in like national parks and been arrested by park rangers for littering. Mm-hmm for littering, like putting a full jug of water. So that if they get around that sort of like those laws even to do that, or there's been the documented cases of border patrol going and slicing water jugs put out or kicking them over uh, the side of a mountain or something like that. Um, yeah, so, but that's the whole, the whole thing is that people are getting this, it's either these, these forces or having to go through these desolate areas. You could talk about the, the bestia or the beast going up through yeah. Mexico, the, the train. train. Yeah. It's part of the, it's part of the same thing. Anything that puts people in vulnerable areas where, they, where they're put into dangerous situations is supposed mm-hmm. to be a quote unquote deterrent. And that's all part of it. And I would argue that this is, this is like one of the most modern warfare war, war zones and what a border does is create a permanent one right there's no longer a beginning nor an ending the border is the justification of it here's a border just because it exists oh here's a border zone and you can like in the united states there's a they call it a constitution free zone some places because the elements of the u.s constitution at least become mangled in these areas where this the this it, i guess a better word, way to say it is a state of exception right in these mm-hmm, states of yeah. exception it, you're allowed like officials and forces and official forces can do way more than they could do if it wasn't in those sorts of states so it's like this low intensity you know to use the low intensity doctrine um low intensity kind of war zone that, that you could see permeating in different borders wherever you go, whatever border, like I've been to so many of them and now they ha- they're all different, but they have all these kind of similarities of I can arrest mm-hmm. you, I can pull a gun on you if you cross this line mm-hmm. and, and that's a criminal act. And then you will, you, I can then, you know, um, that gives me a lot of power over you. You know, that's like when you are at the airport in the United States, and if you are coming through immigration and get pulled for secondary questioning and additional, you know, you get put in a room by border patrol and you have, you're, you're like in a constitutional void. Yeah. Even as a U.S. citizen with a valid passport, when you are put in one of those rooms for additional questions, it, it's, it's a, it's, it's a void, you have, it's just in this void, you know? 
Yeah. This black can, zone. <laughs> whatever, like the Fourth Amendment, the right not to be searched nor seized, yeah. gone. You might as well it's just all, all of it. Burn yeah. the burn, burn it, burn it all down because it's not there. I remember one time I crossed the border, um, and they made me and a friend of mine leave everything in the car, including our phones. And we mm-hmm. went into this room for secondary interrogation, um, and they shut the door and locked it. So we were actually detained as if in. in you were a, like in a cell. A in a cell. cell. A but they cell. didn't tell us. They did. They they didn't tell us that. They said, "Oh, just wait here while we look through your car." But they locked the door was locked, so it was like being cell. And they didn't even say anything, because whatever it is, like you say, there's a void area, and the yeah. border, the bo- actual border, and then. It's not only the actual border, it's a hundred miles, a hundred miles inland. And that's, that's one of the things that, so the checkpoints are put up in different, like all over the borderlands, uh, roving patrols of Department of Homeland Security are everywhere. They can pull you over for, for a reasonable suspicion, which could be anything. Right. And, uh, and so, yeah. And so that's sort of, Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for the audience, what Todd is talking about when he's talking about this 100-mile zone, it's from, from what is officially the U.S. border, one, or even the coast of, say, like California, 100 miles in. So into the east in California, up from the north from the Mexico-U.S. border, and then, um, you know, Washington State, 100 miles down south from the Canadian border. That, I mean... That's where the border patrol works. One hundred miles in, the whole perimeter of the United States. And if you look at the population of the United States, that's two hundred million people, or two thirds wow. of the U.S. lives in these these zones. Yeah. Um, and and well, if yeah, you look New York at how, City. The, yeah, New York City's in it, and the yeah. border patrol has expanded. Like in the last twenty five years, in nineteen ninety four, it was four thousand. Now it's twenty one thousand. Customs and Border Protection, 60,000, and it's 60,000 agents, and it's the largest federal law enforcement agency. So what we were talking about when they deemed these zones, like in the 1950s, and to what it is now, like these forces now are more, they can expand in different places. That's why CBP could send drones over Minneapolis after George Floyd in uh, 2020. CBP sent Predator B drones over to do surveillance over Minneapolis or BORTAC, which is the special forces unit of the US Border Patrol could go into Portland and and swipe people off the streets and or go into Washington DC and mark green uniform border patrol agents. All those places are in this 100 mile zone. I mean, it's still definitely concentrated more on the Southern border for sure. But as it expands, it it could just be deployed in more and more places. This so is what, what we at Code Pink say is, um, and, and Leslie's organization too, we say, you know, this is what you're talking about, Todd, is, is the example or is the reality of US foreign and military policy coming home. Yeah. So Todd, can you, has anything changed since President Biden took office? Because we, we knew what the former I don't even want to say his name. <laughs> you the former did, but, the former White uh, House occupant. <laughs> <laughs> the former White House, right? What has actually changed since since then regarding the immigration? The rhetoric. The rhetoric has changed. Um, the in substance. In the <laughs> yeah, the face of it. The we're anti-wall, but it's now it's being shown that they're still even building the wall. We're gonna we're gonna. They say we're gonna not build one more more foot of wall, but. Uh, we're going to divert to technology as if technology is humane. It's not. Mm-hmm. We're talking about these surve- invasive surveillance technologies that are given out these huge contracts to private companies that become a mm-hmm. kind of the corporatization of the border and profit-making elements of it. Um, you had the, this kind of winding down of the Remain in Mexico program mm-hmm. that was happening and never fully happened. And now it looks like they're trying to implement it yet again. Um, Title 42, which is the COVID era you know, the enforcement, um, uh, the, how they're enforcing the border, like if with Title 42, if people cross the border, they can do rapid expulsions, including asylum seekers. So they could stop people from asking for asylum and just really deport them back to Mexico rapidly. Title 42, which is Trump era, COVID-19, uh, many people are saying that this should be rescinded now, is still in effect. And that's mm-hmm. just the Trump stuff. 
I would the the when you look at the Biden administration, and I and I always look before Trump because every all the border the brutal border apparatus predated the Trump administration. The massive historic buildup of it. You can look into the 1990s with the Bill Clinton administration right. with operations such as Gatekeeper and Safeguard yeah. and this just massive um, buildup of infrastructure that got went on turbo drive after 9-11 and, and looking at these budgets going growing and growing and growing and growing. By the time Trump took office, it was a $20 billion budget for CBP and ICE. It was more than all other federal law enforcement agencies combined. Um, that, that includes like the DEA and the FBI and the U.S. Marshals. And all this emphasis has been putting on border and immigration enforcement. And there's no indication in that sense that Biden's not going to, is going to stop those bigger, broader trends of building up the border, of the prevention through deterrence policy and strategy that's been in effect since 1994, uh, that, um, and the externalization of the border part of it. Uh, it seems to be an emphasis that's being undercovered by the, by the media, but it's, it's, it seems to me, having covered it, that empire of borders aspect of it, there's a mm -hmm. lot of emphasis on, on expanding it out further and fortifying areas in Mexico and Central America and going further and further down. And so to, to my eyes, as we proceed, now we're, we're more than six months into the, we're what, like 10 months into it? We're in October, oh my well, God. Almost a um, year. Almost a year. It seems to me that oh, it's pretty much the MO, right? The, well, the status quo has won, is winning. It's possible that there'll be enough pressure that he'll, they'll finally rescind Title 42, that they're there's pushback against them starting up the Remain in Mexico program again, and that seems to be what's happening. Um, but it, it just seems like it's just the continuation of what has been happening. And that said, I just want to say one more thing about it. Trump, the Trump administration was not, you could not pressure the Trump administration. The Biden administration seems like there is potential, the uh, differences, there's potential if there's some grassroots pressure to pressure them about this um they have they, the rhetoric is is pro-immigrant anti-wall they're saying all these things but doing the opposite so right. basically calling them out on that stuff pressuring them maybe i don't i don't know if it will but could have some effect last thing is that they're getting so many campaign contributions from border industry companies mm -hmm. um that sort of thing's going on as well which of course, so you're up against a wall, a mountain, right? A but whole uh, privatization. Yeah, exactly. And profiting yeah. off of migration, migrants. Yeah. Or fleeing, mm -hmm. you know, deadly things. Um, you know, I've got. I, I could just keep talking here. I want to bring in two two people from our audience. I've got a couple. One comment and one question for you. Sure. Um, so Rick Cohn says, um, there are so many immigrants from Guatemala and Honduras compared to Nicaragua. Imagine if we allowed countries to help their own people thrive like the Nicaraguan government does. We wouldn't need the militarization to prevent immigration. And that's what we were talking about earlier, that, that clash between governments that are people over profit and other models that are profit, profit only pretty much. Um, and then Stan, Stan Becker has a question for you, Todd. What would be a humane ethical border and immigration policy short of open borders? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I think um, that the way a border is set up right now, the idea of a humane border is a bit of an oxymoron. Um, but that said, it seems like there are, there are very palpable things that could be done. Um, for example, if you could, you could, like, if you look at the CBP ICE budgets or the border militarization budgets, they just grown and grown and grown and grown and grown over the last twenty five years, even since the nineteen eighties. What if, what if they didn't grow? Like, what if we were able to stop them from growing? What if we could just bring them down some notches and then? take that money and spend it on something else like something like code that, pink's cut the pentagon campaign <laughs> like code pink's cut the pentagon campaign yeah. like any any you know like those those sorts of 
more like that might be instead of saying no borders or open borders in Washington, you could say, let's stop this increase of the budgets and put that money towards something else. Um, like cleaning or, the environment. Clean like the cleaning, environment. Yeah, like cleaning the environment or there's so much that can be done. The climate finance is a very interesting one. Uh, and, and I should say I'm about, I'm co-authoring a report for the Transnational Institute that's gonna come out this coming oh, week. Wow. And it's- Oh, I, wow, you'll have to send us the link to that. I will, I will. Yeah. It's called the Great Climate Border. And it looks at the historic emitting countries and showing that there's a parallel between them and border militarizing. And then it's also showing that they've been neglecting the climate finance. And climate finance is the amount of money that the rich countries said they were going to put towards um, uh, more low-income countries that are particularly vulnerable to climate change to, um, to help them with the adaptation and to withstand some of the, the impacts of climate change. But when you look at climate finance, um, and it has been woefully, it has been neglected. And um, at the same time, the border budgets of all these countries, and we looked at, we looked at the, of course, the US, but also Canada, Germany, the UK, Australia, um, I think there was a couple others, New Japan. <laughs> we didn't look at New Zealand. They didn't, I mean, we could look at New Zealand, but New Zealand wasn't in the, we looked at the top 10 historic emitters mm. and then and then looked at like, okay, they have this debt to the world, right? Being the historic yeah. emitters. And then uh, we went from that kind of perspective, but it's a, it's a big report and there's lots wow. of visuals and, and stuff. Well, you'll so, have to uh, share that with us. We'll do, I will do, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so- one thing is like, why not spend it on climate finance, right? This, right. if there's so many, this, so much displacement happening already due to climate change and the right. internal displacement monitoring center saying 25 million people per year at this point that they can calculate. There's probably more because their ability to calculate droughts is, is, is not as good as they want it to be. Um, so if you, if you could uh, put more money into climate finance and that mitigates like, you know, it mitigates the people, the migration. people don't need, yeah, people don't need, if, if things are good, people do don't, a lot of people just don't want to migrate, they want to stay or in their places, and, uh, and it's, and it's like, if there's more, like, and, and, and it'd have to be, you know, there's so much, like, USAID, and we know, we know all about all that, right, all the kind of investment from the United States that sort of undermines, people and that's not what I, I don't I don't think that's what we're talking about it's more of this climate finance that goes to local mo regional movements and and uh, people to be able to develop to withstand it and that's one thing like why not do that instead of build more wall right it just right. makes so much more sense yeah and it's not ultimately what it's about for many people <laughs> right I'm so happy we've had this hour with you. Oh my gosh, I want to just keep talking to you. I want, I want to have you come back, but I do, I'm going to ask again, please be sure to share the link for your report and we should probably take a look at oh, yeah. it and then have you come back and talk about it. Oh, sure. Yeah, and, yeah. I'll, I'll... And also my recommendation to those folks who are watching us is to invite Todd once this pandemic is you know, under control. We were very lucky here in Columbia, Maryland to have him a couple of times at least. Yeah. And it's so much better to have you in person uh, with a potluck dinner. Um, you know, we hope to do it next year. Todd. I hope so. I really do. Yes. I, I really want to do that. So, yes. And for our audience, Build Bridges Not Walls can be purchased at citylights.com. Um, and anyone ordering from the citylights.com site gets an automatic 30% discount. And then Todd, I believe Empire of Borders can be purchased at uh, versobooks.com, V-E-R-S-O books.com for all of you watching. So I wanna remind all of you, you've been watching What the F is Going On in Latin America and the Caribbean, Code Pink's weekly YouTube program of hot news out of the region. We broadcast every Wednesday evening, 4.30 p.m. Pacific, 7.30 p.m. Eastern, excuse me. I'm, I'm at the seventh, I'm, I'm the two hour difference. Um, and also be sure to watch, uh, to listen to Code Pink Radio every Thursday morning, 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific broadcast out of New York City, WBAI New York City simulcasting 
WPFW Washington, DC. Both What the F is Going On in Latin America and Code Pink Radio can be found now on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and wherever you listen to your podcasts. So, so thank you everyone for joining this us. This program will be recorded, right? It so for folks who missed the program, please let them know. On, um, everyone can find it on Code Pink's YouTube channel. It's an evergreen link on Code Pink YouTube. And also uh, you can find it, the audio will be available in uh, by Friday on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So, Great. and those of you who registered will for the Zoom, uh, we'll get the link emailed to you. So multiple ways to listen to this fabulous conversation with Todd. And please be sure to read all his books. And as Leslie said, have him come speak to your community and your work. I really appreciate it, Todd. This was a fabulous, fabulous conversation. And you do just incredible work. It's a real honor to meet you and talk with you. A real privilege. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was, it was my privilege to be on on your program and uh, and to be with with you and Leslie and Code Pink and Friends of Latin America. So it's my honor to be with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you, so thank you. thank you, everyone. We'll see you next week. <laughs>